This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, January 19th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. The opioid crisis in the United States has been exacerbated by a pandemic, of course, but the attempts by lawmakers to stem problems associated with opioids sends a clear signal to physicians to prescribe less pain medication, whether or not that serves their patients well. By putting up hurdles to physicians engaging in the prescription of opioids, Cato's Jeff Singer argues lawmakers insult both patients and their doctors. Singer provides a few avenues for reform that would go some distance toward allowing doctors and patients to work out how best to manage pain. For people who have watched Dope Sick, which is based on uh, one telling of the opioid crisis in the United States, uh, I think you would agree that uh, people have gotten sort of a an unclear and uh, not exactly fair understanding of how we got to this uh, pretty dire situation with respect to opioid overdoses. Yeah, it's uh, I've written about this a lot. In fact, um, the policymakers, many of whom are invested in the war on drugs, when they began to see overdose rates really rising in the early part of the century and catching uh, the attention of the general media, uh, they looked for an easy um, scapegoat, which was doctors prescribing opioids to their patients in pain and supposedly hooking them. And 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 then there have been a number of books, including Dope Sick, Dreamland, that have reinforced this notion. And no doubt there, there are some doctors who've practiced uh, in strange ways where they've been basically drug dealing. Um, using their medical license to do that. But that's not the cause. The evidence is pretty convincing that the overdose crisis has basically been on a steady exponential uh, increase since the at least the 70s. And there's a really good study out of the University of Pittsburgh that shows that. And just different points in time, there are different drugs that predominate among those that are causing the overdoses. Um, but there's been an, uh, an increase in overdoses, and it's all driven by prohibition because prohibition makes uh, use of things in a black market more dangerous uh, and so that when you purchase what you think is a, a product, you know, you have no way of knowing the dose, the purity, or, or, or even if it's what it says it is. So what's happened is in the early part of the century when it was decided that the doctors were hooking patients on pain meds and causing the overdose crisis, Policies on both the federal and state level were put into place to get doctors to cut down on prescribing, and there's been a dramatic drop in, pres- in, in overdose prescribe and uh, opioid prescribing since, in fact, since 2012, is about a 60 percent reduction in, in the number of opioids prescribed. Meanwhile, the overdose rate has soared. We heard recently that for the 12 months ending April 2021, there were 100,000 overdose deaths, and 83 uh, percent of them were involving fentanyl. And uh, fentanyl, this is not the fentanyl that we doctors prescribe. This is fentanyl made in labs in a powdered form, uh, usually uh, by the drug cartels. And fentanyl is either mixed in with certain drugs to increase their potency and and therefore allow it to be smuggled in in smaller amounts and, and be subdivided into more uh, products to sell, or it's actually used uh, by to, with pill presses to be made into counterfeit prescription pain pills. Meanwhile, uh, uh, people who were using non-medically diverted prescription pain pills, because that's what their drug of choice was, as that source dried up because of decreased prescribing, they just moved over to heroin and then heroin and fentanyl. But since fentanyl is so much more potent than prescription pain pills, they are 
overdosing. And that's was so, so our policies have driven up the overdose rate. But at the same time, patients who have been, uh, on having had their pain controlled with opioids are suddenly uh, getting desperate because their doctors have been pressured into into tapering them off of opioids and and they're t- they're turning to the black market in pain and desperation. So for states that are seeing this problem, uh, careful listeners will know that I live in Kentucky. Uh, you know, Kentucky is one of the states that has a substantial uh, opioid problem. Your uh, home state of Arizona is uh, similar. Um, what can state policymakers do to get a handle on this problem, one, and two, uh, alleviate the harms that uh, the opioid epidemic is causing? Well, I break it down into two categories. There's actually a lot that states can do. So the category one is dealing with harm reduction. Um, the people who are non-medically using, uh, we, states could uh, enact uh, or actually mainly repeal their drug paraphernalia laws, which have blocked the product development and proliferation of harm reduction programs. So for example, um, it's, it's in many states illegal to have a syringe exchange program where you can give out clean needles so that people uh, are not spreading HIV and hepatitis. At the same time, uh, states, because of drug paraphernalia laws, are prohibited from handing out testing equipment. It's, it's some things as, as, as simple as fentanyl test strips that are used in emergency rooms, normally used to test urine for drug screens. But there are other testing, uh, uh, there are testing centers, for example. Uh, uh, in Europe, there are many places where uh, people can actually drop off their black market obtained drugs uh, and anonymously have it tested and checked for what's really in it before they use it. Uh, But all of those kinds of things are against the law because states have what's called drug paraphernalia laws that make it illegal to uh, uh, distribute, exchange, uh, illicit drugs or any materials used to test or make them or use them. Uh, interestingly, there is one state, Alaska, has no drug paraphernalia law, so there's nothing really standing in the way of organizations that want to get involved in these harm reduction programs from getting started. But all of the other states in the District of Columbia do have drug paraphernalia laws, and so we really should get rid of those drug paraphernalia laws. Well, and let's understand, when you talk about drug testing strips, this is to for people who uh, are either dependent or addicted to these drugs. This gives them. Mo- this would give them more information about Correct. what they are about to put in Correct. their bodies. So, if somebody, for example, thinks uh, they purchased, uh, let's say, an oxycontin pill, there's a way to test it to see if it's really fentanyl. That's something they should. Li- they would like to know before they ingest it. Or if they purchased heroin. Uh, They'd like to know if it's really heroin or if it's heroin mixed with fentanyl or if it's fentanyl. We hear a lot of deaths now uh, with cocaine mixed with fentanyl. And uh, it's popular for people who, who use cocaine and other stimulants to mix them with heroin. It's called speedballing. It's a, they, uh, they think it kind of smooths, smooths over the come down from the high. But lately, it's been fentanyl instead of heroin. And fentanyl is so much more powerful that they've been overdosing from the fentanyl when they've been taking cocaine. So if you could test, but uh, unfortunately, states have these drug paraphernalia laws on the books that make testing equipment or uh, or even handing out testing equipment illegal in, in, in most states. So the easiest way is just to get rid of the drug paraphernalia laws. So there are nonprofits out there 
that are intensely interested in being able to distribute uh, this the these items to people who are dependent or addicted to these drugs to make their lives better and not spread other diseases. And they're, as you note, they're prevented from doing that. Yeah. Uh, now, some states have uh, legalized some of these programs, but they, they legalize them basically as a, exclusions to their existing drug paraphernalia laws. So they, they put a lot of conditions with it. So in some states, they'll allow, for example, syringe service programs, but they only allow a certain number, or they can only exist if they're approved by the state, uh, the county department of health, or they can only function if they collect a, a, a needle and syringe for everyone they hand out, which sometimes is completely impractical. So and other states are, are more, uh, have fewer uh, restrictions, but the, the simplest way to do it is get rid of the paraphernalia laws. Then the other category that uh, uh, states could act in is mitigating the harm that is being done to patients because doctors are being terrorized into under-prescribing pain medicine these days or cutting off chronic pain patients who've had their pain well-managed on steady doses of opioids for years because they're, they, they read in the papers and see on television SWAT teams busting into doctor's offices and arresting them for, quote-unquote, inappropriately prescribing because the law enforcement starts uh, kind of going on fishing expeditions through these uh, databases that each state has called the prescription drug monitoring programs. And so doctors are, are petrified, and they're, many of them are just not prescribing pain medicine at all. Uh, so what states could do on that level, there, I, I, I have come up with three proposals that I think would help a lot. Uh, obviously, nothing's going to be 100% cure, but they do a lot of good. One is to repeal what has been put on the books in 36 states, which is the states have, have basically enacted uh, law saying how many opioids and what dose can be prescribed to patients by doctors in certain situations. You can't, if there's anything we should have learned over these last two years of the, of the COVID pandemic, it's that medical science is a work in progress. There are a lot of different opinions and every individual is, is in an individual with different, different reactions. It's very nuanced. Uh, thank goodness they haven't put into law the dose of insulin I could prescribe to a diabetic or the dose of hypertensive medication I could prescribe to a person with high blood pressure. So by putting these things into law, like in the state of Kentucky, I think there's a three-day supply of opioids that can be prescribed. The fact is that you can't tell a doctor how to treat pain. Uh, meanwhile, this gives law enforcement an opening to say, well, you, you're prescribing outside of this, so we're going to arrest you. So number one, get that off the books, stop putting into statute and into concrete and evolving nuanced medical science. Number two, uh, pass a law saying that if law enforcement wants to go through the prescription drug database to look for quote unquote inappropriate prescribing, they need to get a warrant signed by a judge so there's probable cause that a crime is being committed. 18 states have that on the books. Now, the state of New Hampshire is actually in litigation with, with, with the DEA because the DEA wants to look at their prescription drug monitoring database and New Hampshire is insisting they get a search warrant because that's their law. And the DEA says we're above that because we're the feds. So that's being litigated in federal court right now. But meanwhile, there's also all the other, the state level law enforcement that will be affected by it. So states should enact that. That's just common sense. Um, and, and then finally, what they should put into law is that if upon going through the prescription drug database, law enforcement thinks a doctor has been, quote unquote, inappropriately 
or misprescribing, but not violating a clear law, like a doctor's not on the street selling pills, um, then they may only report that to the appropriate medical licensing board, which supposedly was created to police their own doctors. And in that case, and that's a standard of care or possibly malpractice question. It's not a crime question. So the licensing board, the doctor will have due process, be able to explain things to his peers uh, who understand the nuances. They may agree. They may think nothing's wrong here, or they may think something's wrong, but they'll take appropriate action. You don't need a people with guns showing up at your office to discuss whether or not you're practicing according to the standard of care. There's a system in place for that already. And if we pass those three things, I think over time, it'll thaw out the chilling effect that's been placed on on prescribers in, in the various states who are afraid to prescribe. They'll be less afraid to prescribe. Yeah. All of these laws on the books that uh, sort of box in the manner in which physicians and patients can engage with one another and come to agreements about what is appropriate for patients, it's just, it, it shows a remarkable level of disrespect for one, the professionalism of physicians, and two, the ability of individuals to make determinations on their own behalf in consultation with a doctor. Yeah, and basically it amounts to legislators and cops practicing medicine, not the healthcare practitioners. Dr. Jeff Singer is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. We spoke last week. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.